Welcome to Inside Out, a collaboration between Pitchfork and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago that explores new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff. Stephen Merritt is no typical memoirist. In April, the magnetic field singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist sat down with Pitchfork's Mark Hogan for a conversation in front of an audience at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Though the Magnetic Field's new album, 50 Song Memoir, consists of a song for each of the first 50 years of his life, Merritt isn't a tell-all artist. In interviews, he has long been known for his acerbic reticence, often marked by lengthy pauses. Over the course of an hour, however, Merritt waxed wise and witty, reflecting on the nature of art, the challenges for a notoriously anti-autobiographical performer in finally telling his own life story, and the evolving meaning of the Magnetic Field's classic, The Book of Love. Well, and we were talking backstage, um, you know, Stephen, as we kind of find out uh, on his new album, which covers his entire life, uh, 50, you know, 50 Song Memoir, uh, he's moved around a lot and lived a lot, in a lot of places. And I was wondering, um, you know, uh, if you'd ever spent much time in Chicago, if you've ever had any especially uh, vivid memories here. In about 1982, when did Purple Rain come out? In 1984, <laughs> which is about 1982, uh, my Magnetic Fields co-lead singer Shirley and I were living in Boston and we decided one night, let's go to Chicago tomorrow. <laughs> um, so we woke up and at eight in the morning we started driving the 18 hours to Chicago. Uh, and I thought I, I should be a bus driver. I have the stamina for this. No problem. Um, but uh, it was actually longer than 18 hours because there was something that I'd never heard of in Boston, traffic. <laughs> we don't have that. Um, so we stayed in Boston. We stayed in Chicago with um, friends from school. Um, and we both heard Purple Rain for the first time. So I always identify that with Chicago. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we went to a, a flea market in the street, whatever, a street market, and I bought my very first Nancy Sinatra album, which is also the first Nancy Sinatra album, Boots. <laughs> Well, we had not discussed that backstage. That was that was that was all new. Um, but uh, you choose your words carefully, so that's why I have this gigantic thing of notes in front of me. But um, I am also known for my one-word answers, which actually encapsulate everything I have to say on the subject. <laughs> so it, it can be a good idea to bring more questions than you probably have time for, just in case you think I can't encapsulate everything I have to say on the subject in a single word. But um, you know, but you're you're not so restrained when it comes to your, you know, your, your musical projects. I mean, uh, they're often, or not often, but some of the best known have been quite large scale. Whether it's you know, sixty nine love songs or now, a fifty song memoir. And my question. And yet, part of uh, what makes them large scale is that there are lots of very short songs. <laughs> 
Well, so I mean, the question was, you know, what draws you to those kinds of large scale projects? I mean, aside from the kind of the you know the restraints maybe built into you know the concepts, uh, it seems like sort of a different experience listening to a really vast record and going through it um, than you know a shorter album. Um, I have put out EPs and I have put out multiple record sets, but most of my records about half an hour long. So sometimes I like to deviate from my usual half hour format. Uh, and when I deviate, I deviate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also have kind of often maintained that you know that you aren't really a an autobiographical songwriter. Um, and correct me if I if I'm if I'm wrong, but um, I am usually not an autobiographical songwriter. So uh, you know, how is it different? And I probably never will be again. <laughs> And in this album, you know, the initial idea was to, you know, write a song about every year of of, of your life, um, starting from age one. Uh, how is it different writing, you know, intentionally autobiographically this time, or I guess having people know that it would be autobiographical? How, how did that affect your creative process? Well, I started out making a list of the people I needed to write about without offending. Um, and I decided not to write about anyone in the band so that I wouldn't be forced to share the stage with someone who was grinding their teeth every time we got to a song about them. Uh, so even though I have known Claudia, my manager and pianist for 30 some odd years, I don't mention her on the album except briefly uh, in passing. Um, but I mention my mother. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I had to start out by figuring out exactly what I couldn't say on the album before I decided what I could say on the album. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. Certain people's names do not appear correctly. A few people's names are changed. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you talk about you know, pretty personal like, you know, feelings and stuff too. I mean, is it, is it different when, does that change your approach at all when it's about when you're saying, oh, you were the one who felt sad or you were the one who felt heartbroken as opposed to a character or, or does it not make any difference to you? Well, ordinarily, my songs are short and vague and you can't tell whether I'm singing about myself or about you. Um, and ideally, in a pop song, there's no distinction between those two things. In this particular record, I use lots of proper nouns on many of the songs. And some of the songs are just like, I'm sad. You made me sad. You're bad. Um, that actually is a song on the record. I'm, I'm, um, That's true. Uh, and it doesn't get too much more specific than that. Um, and yet it's completely autobiographical and <laughs> absolutely true. Maybe not the you're bad part, but kind of bad, yeah. Um, uh, I tried, uh, beyond that, uh, I tried to make sure that there were 50 different ways of responding to the task so that there would be maximum variety. Um, in the late 70s, there was a new wave band called the Space Negroes. I'm sure you've all heard them. And they, uh, they released their immortal flexi-disc EP, 
maximum contrast from moment to moment. Uh, I have ever since then taken maximum contrast from moment to moment as my musical motto. Um, all that changes is how long a moment is. Well, while we're talking about obscure bands, um, uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> was it uh, the 1989 song on 50 Song Memoirs? about? Mm. Uh, it's about the 1989 musical Marching Zoo, who were a probably fictitious band that appeared on the Casanets and Cats Singing Orchestral Circus album. Uh, which was sort of a live album from when they played at Carnegie Hall and that there's audience noise in between the songs, which are clearly not recorded live. So <laughs> everything about it is smudged and confusing and uh, they wear animal masks. So um, who knows who the 1989 musical Marching Zoo were, if they existed at all, and what would it mean for them to exist for two sides of a single, which are actually just on an album <laughs> by people who are uh, particularly famous for uh, switching around band names without telling the bands. So it seemed like you might have taken some, some inspiration from that group. Oh, yes. <laughs> As I say in the song, this is the band that I wanted to be. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I grew up with Phil Spector. Phil Spector just slapped the band name on a record. Who cares who sang on it? I thought it was interesting, too, in that song, you talk about how um, there'd be no pictures of you if that was the, the band that you were right. in. Um, and now you know, you have an autobiographical album. I guess there's not really a question in that, though. But. Well, there is a picture of me on the cover, but it is a painting but it's based on a photo. I mean, partly incorporates photography. It's mostly a painting. I don't know whether it's a digital painting or an analog painting. And it's by my mother. <laughs> or she says she, she did it, so I, I assume that she did it. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, you, know, you, you taught that you, you had to be careful. Oh but I don't remember posing for it at all. <laughs> I recognize the cafe, but I don't remember ever going to that cafe with my mother. <laughs> Where's the cafe? It's no longer there. Uh, at the corner of Christopher Street and something in the village. Um, so, uh, Have you heard much from your mom about the, about, about the record? Or um, has she had... She has come to the show a few times. Um, she finds the first half, the half starring her, uh, to be the scary half, and the second half to be the nice, happy half. Everyone else thinks the first half is funny and the second half is... The uh, first half is comedy and the second is tragedy, like history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you talk about music a lot on the record. Uh, oh, no, it's uh, history is the other way around, right? First for, is tragedy, the second is the second farce. Second time is yeah, farce. It's farce. Yes. yes, yes. So it's like history only backwards, like, like the angel of history blowing backwards, 
into the future, and this angel is called progress. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, do you misremember your life like all, all the time I'm now? I'm misremembering on the Walter Benjamin through the uh, quotation of Laurie Anderson. Yes. <laughs> yes, I misremember everything. Yes. <clears throat> or not everything, probably. Statistically, it would be. It'd be impossible for me to misremember everything. Would it be? Yes. 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 Um, uh, uh, <laughs> um, so, so let's, okay, you know, mentioned Walter Benjamin, and uh, you talk about books a lot on 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 the album. You know, Ethan Frome. There's a great song about uh, Ethan Frome and how maybe there should be a musical about Ethan Frome. Or as it turns out, there is. But when I wrote oh. the song, there hadn't been. So I, I, I was right. Um, I haven't been able to find a recording of the musical. Um, and since the book came out in 1911, it's not copyrighted. It's in the public domain. So they can't really have rights to the underlying property. Uh, so there could always be another Ethan Frome musical if you happen to feel like writing one. <laughs> I was actually yeah, going to ask if it was a good musical, but yeah, you, you, don't, yeah, you, don't, you don't know yet. I don't know. Um, uh, but I'll I, definitely see it if, if I can. But. As, as a writer on these songs, I mean, how do you feel, what is your relationship to literature? I mean, it, seems, it seems like you're a big lover of, of books. You know. um, One of my favorite activities at home is to look for places where I could possibly put another bookshelf in my three-story house. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of books. I think I have more books than records. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned um, there, there's a, you know there's, there's a few kind of almost decent bookstores in in your town in, in Hudson, New York. Well, they're, they're they're decent in their own way. There's there is no great bookstore in Hudson, um, but there's a good antique bookstore and there's a nice bookstore that is also a bar, but where they sell George Perec books. And so um, then there's a, a kind of, frankly, terrible bookstore where they sell paperbacks uh, that are in not very good condition for more than list price. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in a strip mall. I don't... I don't know how they stay in business. Do you ever write songs in, in any of them? Maybe the one that has a bar attached or? No. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, there... I write songs in gay bars. I very rarely write songs in straight bars. I don't feel comfortable in straight bars. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Good question. Thank you, audience. Do you feel comfortable in the opposite Orientation bar? Yeah. Comfortable enough to write a song. Because <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you also have, well, there's Be True to Your Bar, which I was thinking of, which is about you know, writing songs in bars. I mean, is that, so is that still your practice when you, when, you, when you wrote these songs? Do you still write them in, in gay bars? If there are any of these songs that I didn't write in a gay bar, it's pro it would be 
the songs that I wrote some part of before I was old enough to go into bars. <laughs> Well, and that is an interesting thing is, is how there's there's songs that you there's songs on this album that, that elements of it dates way back. I mean, what what you know, dates way back? I, I tried to use uh, actual old things uh, in the process of making the album, including old pieces of tape that I recorded in the early '80s um, and old bits of song. The I think I got some from the 70s. Um, and old instruments, of course. Especially um, old synthesizers. Because um, I was born in 1965, and basically so was the synthesizer. So uh, I, in collecting synthesizers of my life, that's all the synthesizers there are. So there's, um, is, is it true there's more than 100 instruments on, on, this, on this record? People keep asking me that, but I have not counted. So <laughs> you tell me. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, and as we were talking just before about you know, connections to literature, but I mean, you're a musician and you have all these old instruments um, and you played a number of the instruments on this, like a, a large number, whatever number that is, uh, you know, yourself as well. Um, and one thing I thought was interesting was, you know, um, and I think it might have been uh, Barry Walters from NPR that pointed this out, but in some of the songs, it seems like you're almost subverting the... Uh, the genre that it is, so you know, like rock and roll um, will ruin your life. Um, you're saying you, know, you might think that you're hearing a guitar, but you're not. Or uh, on how to play the synthesizer. I mean, there there are some kind of strummy stringed instruments on there. I guess I was wondering how you approach the instrumentation. Uh, no, that's Fox and I. Yes, sorry, Fox don't and I. Yes, the strummy stringed instruments. Yes, yes, yes. How my, to play my, the synthesizer really is all the all the uh, pitched instruments are in fact synthesizer um, it's probably kind of weird that the percussion is not a rhythm unit it's me banging an abacus <laughs> but uh, other than that it's sort of it's electro pop but I, I wanted the of uh, the flying lizards song money um, and I don't know how they made it but it definitely was not normally recording a normal drum kit. Um, but it was also not a rhythm unit, so I banged an abacus. It says in the, in the, in the liner notes for the album that you almost quit music uh, prior to... It says in the liner notes that Daniel remembers that oh. I almost, that I was considering <laughs> quitting music. I have no memory of... It, it seems unlikely that you would, you know, just given that, you know, the passion for music runs all through the, the record and, you know, you're a musician, so... Daniel may have misunderstood the list that I was making. Um, <laughs> I often make lists of things that I am not necessarily actually interested in doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'll say what they are. <laughs> you sure? Uh, in, the, in the lyric booklet, there's a, a double page spread before the lyrics start that has uh, just a list of uh, pairs of words uh, like um, swimming pools, um, I, I can't remember, um, but they're words ending in ing followed by a noun 
Sometimes it's a gerund and a noun. Sometimes it's an adjective. Uh, birthing tanks. Um, and this came from one of my many, many notebooks that I have, a bookshelf of my notebooks where I write lyrics. And I don't remember making this list. I don't remember what it's for. And I can't actually find a pattern in any more than I've just said uh, in what these pairs of words mean or do. And I don't see any any particular aesthetic reason for making this list. So uh, I don't know. Maybe I was writing a song. Maybe, I don't know. I don't remember these things. I write in bars. <laughs> um, so that kind of thing. I have a lot of that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so you'll be playing two shows here uh, in Chicago with a seven-piece band. Yes, I'm playing a two-part show. Sorry, yeah, a two-part show. Yeah, yeah. He plays the, the, um, the whole... Which is confusing enough that I have to definitely mention it every time. I, what, the what, number what? of people who buy tickets not realizing that they're buying a half of a ticket <laughs> is uh, really unfortunate. I, I, it, um, part of the problem with computer culture is that the machine is not going to tell you you do realize that this is a two-part show, don't you? Um, as a person would in a box office. What do you mean you're only coming to night one? The person in the box office would say. The computer does not say that. And I think it's interesting because I think it, you know, sometimes it takes somebody who has been really you know, interested in New technology, and you know, in your case, you know, synths and all that. So somebody who's interested in technology then maybe has a perspective to be critical of it when it newer technology is is going wrong. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, computers when you order, when you order tickets. Um, you know, how, how do you feel about um, streaming? I, mean, I noticed that I couldn't stream this this whole album. I had to I had to buy it. You know, oh, shucks, yeah. Um, but oh, poor you. I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. But no, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful album. But I mean, how do you feel about streaming? I guess is the question in there. Um, there are lots of things that I'm willing to give away. And if you feel like giving away someone listening to a song that you've written, there is something called radio. Um, but I don't look for extra ways of giving things away uh, because it's, it's not fun to give things away. <laughs> it's kind of fun to sell things um, in that that establishes a connection between the seller and buyer. But giving things away is exactly the same as someone stealing from you unless you're doing it deliberately. Um, but as with the box office example, there's no way of my telling you that I'm doing it deliberately. Um, so you don't know whether I'm consenting or not, which kind of spoils the whole relationship, isn't, doesn't it? Um, so I don't like the impersonalness. I don't like the smell of theft. Um, I don't like the uh, absence of 
um, because no money is changing hands, uh, I have no interest in uh, in controlling the situation and making it artistic in some way, if I could. Um, and just in case I wanted to, they make sure that I can't. Um, but iTunes, although iTunes pays my rent, my mortgage, um, I have no control over how the, the work is presented at all. Uh, and I really think that they need to fix this. I think there's a lot wrong with how music is transmitted over the computer. Um, so much wrong that I'm quite interested in making music that can't be transmitted over the computer. Uh, like Laurie Anderson and Lou Reed did with their uh, music for dogs, which simply is inaudible on computer because the sample rate doesn't go high enough. So y your next album might be inaudible? To... Well, if you can't buy it on the computer, it might as well be inaudible <laughs> for most people. Um, you, anyway, there needs to be a, a new structure. Cool. Um, I, <laughs> well, no, um, you mentioned uh, you know the, the kind of the relationship between um, the listener and the, and the artist, uh, and <clears throat> on the last song on the album, you kind of uh, what's the last the last lyric? Uh, um, I don't remember uh, anything. Uh, I have uh, just written a 50-song right. album about how I don't remember anything. <clears throat> I don't remember what the last lyric well, is. I'm, so, I'm trying to remember what the last song is. He has a song uh, called um, um, uh, Every, Everybody... Uh, oh, Everybody's Somebody's, somebody's Fetish. fetish. Okay, and, so, and at the end, he's talking about uh, I, even I how he wrote well a song for you, face. I think. Is that kind of... So, that, any, oh. Uh, I mean, the, the question, if it makes it... <laughs> On my little island, just, I have a lyric sheet sitting in front of me when I play live. <laughs> because when people are staring at me, I remember even less than I usually remember. <laughs> but, uh, well, so at its ideal, I mean, what to you is, is the ideal relationship between um, the artist and, and the listener? That should change with every work of art, shouldn't it? Should there only be one possibility? No, there should be as many possibilities as there are works of art. Duh. So I saw you I saw you speak uh, in 2006 at an event like this uh, with with um, uh, Rick Moody who was uh, in, in my chair and he's uh, a novelist which I would like to say I was but I'm I'm not um, and there's only one way to become one. That's, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> and, Although uh, Kenneth Goldsmith would probably say there are two ways to become one. <laughs> Should I explain what happened with Rick Moody? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I, no, I wasn't trying. It I, is an entertaining story, and having already alienated Rick Moody, um, I may as well <laughs> tell the story. So... Uh, Ten years ago, I was at the 92nd Street Y doing one of these, whatever, an evening with, what do you call it? A talk? A conversation. A, a conversation with a capital C. <laughs> uh, with R Rick Moody, who uh, wrote 
say, The Ice Storm, which I read, and some confessional uh, books about his getting sober, which I hadn't read so and was not aware of. So uh, in our talk, somebody had provided Corvazier, uh, which I naturally thought was for both of us. Um, but it wasn't for both of us. It was just for me. And uh, no one had told me that. And I think there were, there were two glasses on stage, right? Or, or why else would I have been offering Rick Moody the alcohol that he had spent the last few years writing about kicking? Um, I never would have done that if I had known. Um, but you can't read everything by someone you've had, you're having a conversation with. That's why you have a conversation with them. If you've already read everything they've ever written, why have a conversation with them? <laughs> I remembered it as a Shiva's Regal, but, um, but it could have been, um, could have been Crevassier, but... Um, but that was also uh, the year of a song on, on this album called 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 Quotes. Um, so th there had been some people had misconstrued that you had said that Zippity Doodah, you were defending that song. And uh, well, what happened was that I was at the uh, pop conference in Seattle in that uh, in Frank Gehry's uh, em embarrassing non masterpiece. Uh, his only horrible work, uh, the Rock and Roll Museum Hall of Fame, uh, which they painted tomato red. Uh, <laughs> um, and inside, it's just hideous. It's like you're in a concrete bunker. Um, the Disney Hall is a masterpiece. Bill Bell uh, is a masterpiece. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is an accident. <laughs> um, anyway, in this building, which I should never have entered, uh, I, was, I was on a panel with Drew Daniel from Motmos and L.D. Begtel from Flair, and uh, Ann Powers was moderating. And... LD happened to mention that I had a copy of, a bootleg copy of the DVD of Song of the South, because I collect musicals on DVD. Uh, I try to have all Hollywood musicals on DVD. It doesn't mean I like them. Uh, but LD mentioned that I, had, that I had Song of the South. A certain blogger um, who was uh, smoking cigarettes, um, decided to go out for a cigarette and made up what I had said uh, for the next few minutes and put it on her blog. Um, and from there, it got into Slate and the New York Times. Uh, and I hadn't said it. And it was things like, Zippity Doodah is Stephen Merritt's favorite song. Um, and he loves, adores Song of the South. Um, I didn't say any of that. And 
there's film running to prove that I didn't say any of that. Um, so the idiotic blogger, who uh, later titled her book, uh, I believe, the first book by a female living rock critic, something like that, um, which is not true. Um, uh, she somehow continues uh, working where if I did that to anyone, I would have been sued. My lawyer told me not to sue. I deeply regret following his advice. <laughs> uh, anyway, so people make up stuff and they put it in the press. And so that's what my song Quotes is about. I try not to make up stuff, um, yeah, in, in, in the press, but I, I try, I try, well, you know. But, um, I guess that's why you're not a novelist yet. <laughs> Live a little. Yeah, yeah. So, well, at, at that same talk, uh, the 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 uh, Rick Moody talk, not the not the EMP, uh, he said that he uh, that the Book of Love by the Magnetic Fields had been, you know, the, the first dance at, uh, at his wedding. So I actually I, I plagiarized that. I, I stole that idea from him. But um, you know, I've seen that song compared to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah is you know <laughs> sort of like a standard. No, I, I saw it. I think. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> It's repetitive. <laughs> it's got the name of another song. And it has a chorus. <laughs> um, the context It the is sung in a low voice in the original version. Uh, I usually get Leonard Cohen comparisons for my voice, not for my songs. <laughs> I think in that context, so, so I'd it was be certainly flattered to get Leonard Cohen's comparisons for my songs, but um, I usually get Cole Porter, and uh, occasionally I get like Waylon Jennings or something, <laughs> uh, which I also like. I mean, he's a good lyricist. So I think that um, the context was sort of more that it was you know a new standard, um, and uh, I mean, how do you feel about that or about? Sorry, I'm asking you two more than one question, but yeah, how do you feel about it being a new standard or something that you know silly people like me and Rick Moody, no offense to Rick Moody, uh, play at our at our weddings? Um, Rick Moody is not at all silly. <laughs> the situation was silly. I know. I like Rick Moody. I have no problem with him at all. I, I deeply regret uh, my humiliating him in front of the I wasn't trying to bring at that the, the 92nd Street Line. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> um, how do you feel about that song being considered maybe a new, you know, sort of a new standard that people would uh, do sentimental things like you know, play it at uh, you know, their wedding? I am aware that it has been played at at least several weddings I've attended. Uh, but I figure that's the people I know. And often it's being played by me at their wedding. Um, so uh, I went to... Uh, I went to a funeral once. 
of Maggie Estep, my former downstairs neighbor, for nine years when I lived in the East Village. Uh, and she moved to Hudson um, around the time I moved to Hudson. Uh, one day she was walking her dogs, killed over and died at 49, I think. Um, and it was horrible. And uh, everyone who knew her in Hudson was really upset. Uh, she had been doing so well and suddenly she just died out of nowhere. Uh, so her funeral was particularly upsetting and they made me sing the Book of Love, uh, which sounds innocuous until you get to the first chorus being, I love it when you read to me and you can read me anything. Uh, so the audience is literally whimpering and I found it quite difficult to get, to, uh, get through the song uh, without my voice breaking. Um, so this, uh, I am no longer able to, to get through the song without associating it most strongly, not with Peter Gabriel playing it at the Hollywood Bowl, but me playing it at Maggie Estep's funeral uh, and being uh, almost, almost unable to get through it. So that's how I feel about a wedding song. <laughs> I feel it's a funeral song. Yeah. One puts one's children out in the world and one doesn't know what's going to happen to them. Do you still perform that song or is, it, or is that? Well, no, I've yeah. written a 50 song album, right. so I don't have to. <laughs> Mark, it is about time to open it up. Great, great. <laughs> Who wants a go? We have microphones going, so just wait uh, until we get to you. Something you said about uh, controlling the relationship between the listener and the artist stuck in my craw from earlier. You know, considering how, I guess, a barrier has come down for artists gaining their music out there, you know, between, you know, being able to put up their albums on iTunes or Bandcamp, people being able to kickstart albums or just give them away for free. That is controlling the, their product. But if you're dealing with a record company, there's a, there's a layer of record company contract in between you and, uh, and the audience that has been there traditionally. The people who want to give away their music for free can have uh, only that kind of relationship with the audience with the occasional exception like a Radiohead album that they gave it away for free for a limited time, uh, that kind of thing. But there used to be a whole lot of different ways that you could uh, have different kinds of uh, marketing relationships with the audience. And now you have like four. Um, and below that is hand-decorated cassettes, which I used to do, and uh, I'd love to do again, but people tend not to have cassette decks. All of my friends don't have cassette decks. I realize there's a thriving cassette culture, um, and I have a cassette deck, and I listen to music on cassettes, and I love that. Um, but that's one-on-one, -on -one, and I can't, uh, I can't have that, um, that level of... Um, 
nuance anymore. So I, I'm complaining about that. I, I, I'm, this is a conversation, not an article. So I'm, I'm not advancing an argument that I'm prepared to defend in which I've uh, thought about every uh, conceivable way that one could do this. But I'm complaining that, uh, um, that I find it very unsatisfying what is currently happening. But I interrupted. What was upsetting in particular? Uh, no, it wasn't really upsetting. It was just well, kind what's of uh, in your it was kind of glitching in my mind. Yeah. Because I guess because you've been you have been in the music business for so long, and <laughs> this this sort of new development that is has come around of, I'll put my music out there for people to listen if they decide to kick music back to me, but I'm willing to take a chance with, you know, letting people spread the music, tell their friends about it, and hopefully kick the money back to me if they enjoy it that much. You're referring to Kickstarter? Not to Kickstarter, but also to I people. I don't know it. No, also to people who will just put their albums online, like uh, Jonathan Colton, who released a free song a week for but an entire year. once you do year. that, you can't take it offline. Yeah. If you give your your friends cassettes or sell your friends cassettes, both of which I did in the 80s, um, there is at least some friction preventing them from giving the the same the, the copies of those tapes out of context, and and they won't hand decorate the tapes like you did. So there is an object that you made. And its uh, its place in the world is determined by you, but if someone can uh, copy unlimited uh, versions, including changed versions of of your work, then you have no intellectual property, and you have no way of controlling the context that your work is understood in. Which means that people can uh, subvert it. Um, without your consent. All right. All right. I think that uh, clarifies your view a little bit better for me. Thank you. Hi, I just had uh, two questions. Um, how did you feel turning the age 50 and also making such an autobiographical album? And also, too, after making this 50-song memoir, um, has that changed your perspective on being in your 50s or your age? I, I would have the same answer to both of those, which is that my relationship with being 50 is completely uh, destroyed by the fact that I turned it into an aesthetic project. <laughs> uh, so on my 50th birthday, uh, I had a party at which we started recording the album um, rather than, oh, going to a Zen center and... Uh, ex trying to experience what I was experiencing, or something. <laughs> uh, I have no idea how it turns, how it feels to turn fifty, because I basically didn't. Uh, I'm very curious. Uh, you said that you tend to write songs in bars, and I found bars to be the noisiest places to write anything. I don't write songs in just any bar. I I tend to like the bars where old gay men go, uh, where it's not deafening, very important, and where there's enough light to read by so that I can see what I'm doing. Um, so bars, not nightclubs. 
neighborhoody sedate bars. So you seem to visibly shudder at the mention of Cole Porter earlier. What's your biggest uh, qualm with being compared to him? Besides obvious major differences. I mean, you're both witty gay men who are songwriters of great quality, but there's... Thank you. <laughs> but I, I, I think I get compared to Cole Porter because I'm gay. And I feel like that's uh, basically heterosexist. So what is stopping you from being compared to like Hart, for instance, or, you know, dozens of closeted composers of your as well? Oh, Lorenz Hart. I yeah, Lorenz meant. Hart, sorry. The Wilson sisters. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I mean, um, he was another. I would love to be compared to Hart. They're great live. <laughs> um, I, saw, I, I saw them uh, for the Little Queen tour. No, the next the Baby Lestrange tour, I think. Uh, they're fantastic. I just think you, you turned a phrase so beautifully that's really reminiscent of Cole oh. Porter. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm definitely and kissing Hart. your ass now, but I'm also an avid fan of both. So I, I think there um, is some commonality. So the, the first review that I ever read of... The second review I ever read of 69 Love Songs, the first one said that Papa was a rodeo was filler. But the second one... <laughs> Because all country music is terrible, and so Papa was really a film. Um, but the second one uh, gave me the imaginary Lorenz Hart Award for being an ugly, miserable, alcoholic, depressed dwarf uh, who happens to be a genius lyricist. I wasn't going for that. <laughs> um, I see the comparison with Lorenz Hart a bit more than I see it with Cole Porter. My problem with being compared to Cole Porter is that I don't write songs at all like Cole Porter. Uh, I have written maybe two pastiches of Cole Porter, but so has everyone else. Uh, Bob Dylan has probably written 20 pastiches of Cole Porter. It doesn't make people compare him to Cole Porter. Uh, it's certainly flattering to be compared to Cole Porter, but it gets... It sets my teeth on edge. Understandable. Thank you. <laughs> and now the person immediately behind you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I saw a photo of your studio recently, and it's always impressive to see how, much, uh, how many instruments and how much equipment you have. That's actually the studio with the band tour stuff taken out. Okay. So <laughs> it looked a lot less cluttered than it usually does. <laughs> um, so I know you, you use computers and all sorts of gear and stuff, and whether it's an instrument or a piece of studio equipment, I was curious what is your favorite piece of equipment and whether it's because of the audio qualities or whether it's a sentimental value. Can, we, can you rephrase that to uh, take the concept of favorite out? <laughs> sure. I'm on a war path. <laughs> I want to abolish the word favorite for 10 years. <laughs> At this so moment in time, what's... to respond directly to questions <laughs> that contain it okay. for 10 years. Fair enough. If you want to wait until 2027 to ask the <laughs> questions, you can do that, or you could just rephrase it without the favorite part. At this moment in time, what springs to mind as a very enjoyable piece of equipment... <laughs> Or an instrument 
that you that really gives you a lot of pleasure, you know, to to play or to use. I don't play instruments for pleasure. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, what paintbrush do you particularly like using? Um, the studio is my instrument. The studio is the only thing I do well. Uh, um, I'm a terrible instrumentalist. I, I'm a great editor. Um, so Pro Tools is awesome. <laughs> the thing that makes me sound good when I play it. Oh, oh, Auto-Tune. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Auto-Tune makes me sound good even when I sing. Yeah, I use it as well. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, before you mentioned maximum contrast, and I was wondering how you measure contrast. How I measure contrast? Um, that would depend on the context, I guess. Uh, if I'm making an album where I've decided that there's only going to be a few instruments, like eye or distortion, um, I instead of changing instruments, I'll change the register or uh, change the vocal register. Um, I'm trying to think of what the most constrained record I've done. Oh, um, um, for the Orphan of Zhao, the Chinese musical, and I did. Uh, the only instruments were auto harp. Jinghu, which is a small Chinese spike fiddle that makes an ungodly screeching sound. Um, very useful. Um, and uh, pipa, which is a Chinese lute, but more of a banjo. Um, so that it's basically, it was a bluegrass accompaniment for uh, mostly Western actors doing uh, their version of Chinese theater. Um, so that was a very narrow thing. So doing maximum contrast to mo from moment to moment for that meant don't have the same singer sing on two consecutive songs. Very important for musicals in general, really. Um, unless the singer is Ethel Merman. You probably don't want the same singer on two consecutive songs. Um, and um, try to go loud, soft, loud, soft, four, four, three, four, 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 three, four. Um, uh, there was a period in, in the Orphan of Zhao where the same actor plays multiple roles, um, where the, the orphan is being saved by a, a, a set of people. Um, these people are all played by the same actor. Um, so there's inherently, there's three songs in a row by the same singer. Um, but I had him be um, as different as he could possibly be. Fortunately, he uh, studied opera, so he was able to be really different. Um, uh, so uh, it's not always easy to do maximum contrast from moment to moment but it's always entertaining. And, and what it means changes with every work. 
We have time for one more. Uh, since the last question, thank you, first off, for taking our questions. Uh, but Thank you for giving for us. Thank you so much. For, for us celebrating your legacy of so many years of writing songs, since you've been doing it for so long, do you find more pleasure in actually writing about a personal experience or do you get more pleasure out of writing your impression of someone else's experience when you're writing about your friends or things that you just watched? What part now is more enticing for you since you've been doing it for so long? Well, in my hotel room earlier, I was writing a song. Uh, all songs one writes in hotel rooms are the same. Um, as Randy Newman says, uh, if you write in hotels, you write the hotel song. <laughs> um, so I was writing the hotel song, and I was trying to think of how to displace that from sounding just like the hotel song. And I thought, maybe I'd make it a sixth song so it gets to be sung by some celebrity or something. And I was thinking, Brian Ferry. Brian Ferry doesn't sing hotel songs. Uh, maybe I'd, I'd write this as though for, and maybe, who knows, actually for, Brian Ferry to sing. Um, my experiences at this point are exactly the, the experiences that Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen have, uh, only not him anymore. Um, but uh, musicians all have the same life as soon as they're remotely successful. Um, and pretty much beforehand, too. If they're 10 years old, you're practicing guitar or something, um, which means that you are not a popular uh, partygoer. You're a person who sits alone in a room practicing an instrument for hours on end. That's a somewhat narrow range of people. Um, so if I wrote only about my own experiences all the time, it would be boring, really, really boring. Um, because I don't have any experiences. I'm a musician. I'm a really boring person in the, on that level. Um, Fortunately for this album, I have a really eccentric mother. <laughs> Good night. This has been Inside Out, a collaboration between Pitchfork and MCA Chicago. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Elia Einhorn, and co-produced and engineered by Mark Yoshizumi. Thanks for listening.